Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Health Connect South Radio. Brought to you by Sherwick Media, your health and wellness content specialist. Health Connect South is to serve the health community as a sustainable platform for regional health collaborations. Through our collective work, we seek to broadly define and advance the Southeast role in the future of health. Serving as a gateway between health industry silos, we seek to provide unique and meaningful partnership opportunities in health. We are pleased to share this information and these experts with you as part of our mission. Want to be part of the discussion? Join in, tweet questions and comments at HealthCon Radio. What's up, everyone? It's CW. Thanks for checking out the Health Connect South radio show today. Great show in store for you. Last week was the Health Connect South event 2015. It was a spectacular hit held at the Georgia Aquarium in their ballroom section, and it was a beautiful venue for such an event where all these healthcare experts were coming together to talk about the solutions that they were working on and do some collaboration. We had the opportunity, the great honor of hearing a presentation from Dr. Ian Crozier, infectious disease specialist who was treating patients in Western Africa contracted Ebola was the third patient air flighted over to Emory Hospital here in Atlanta. I had the great opportunity to sit down and talk with Ian for a few minutes after his presentation that had everyone in the uh, auditorium on the edge of their seats for sure. You're going to enjoy getting to hear him uh, after we talked with Bob Bean, who is the CEO of a company called Harmonix with a YX on the end there. They're a technology company that actually can take a non-invasive genetic swab of your cheek and tell you whether a particular set of medications would be effective or not for your body based on your genetic code. For example, there is a popular drug that is used to prevent stroke and heart attacks that as many as 30% of the population who take it will get no effect from. And clearly it's one of those medications that's not inexpensive. So they're able to actually start to take personalized medicine to a new level, allowing patients to avoid taking and paying for meds that really will have no effect for them or that might put them at greater risk for particular side effects, for example. So real cool talk with Bob Bean. Coming up here Here's Bob talking about what they're doing and why it's important at Harmonix. Check it out. We specifically looked at the world of pharmacogenomics. And what that specifically means is helping guide the medicine that you're about to take to be appropriate for your body. So the way you hear about it is you go into a pharmacy and a pharmacist who is a partner pharmacy with us looks at you and says, Diana, before you take this, I'd like to share with you some information that about 30% of the people that take this, the drug doesn't work. Or turns out that they're, for the particular drug area you're looking at, there's a test that can guide you because there's 13 different medicines or 15 different medicines in this therapeutic class that can all be used to treat this disorder. Why don't you consider doing a genetic test which will guide you to which ones of those medicines are actually appropriate for you. And so that's how you'd hear about it. And you'd take a little buccal swab there in the pharmacy, put it in your mouth for about 15 seconds. It would FedEx to Memphis. Within 24 hours, those results are posted back to your pharmacist and also you're given an opportunity to go online and request those results in writing. And we're also gonna send a copy back to the prescribing physician who prescribed the medicine in the first place so that all three of you have the opportunity to look at these results and make decisions about which medicines are appropriate. And here's a little bit of my conversation with Dr. Ian Crozier, Ebola patient and survivor. Quite a remarkable day is my first first time to an event like this, but I'm, I've become increasingly interested in making sure that we're all asking the right questions and helping each other answer them. And uh, I've got a new set of questions that have emerged from my own bedside at Emory and some bedsides in Kenema and this type of environment that facilitates collaboration and connectedness between uh, even competitors is uh, is remarkable and sometimes rare. So, And obviously for folks who aren't yet familiar with Dr. Ian Crozier, of course he's one of the fellows that um, came to the United States, was actually treated here at Emory in Atlanta. As an Ebola patient, you had been in Africa doing work for years, actually. You were born in Zimbabwe, if I'm not mistaken? I was born in Zimbabwe. I had returned back to Africa 
about six years ago and I'd been working at a place called the Infectious Diseases Institute which is in Kampala, Uganda. It's a center of excellence for primarily HIV complex care and I've been working on uh, how best to, to train African clinicians, doctors as well as nurses and clinical officers in decision-making sort of skills. So I, I, I don't come from an Ebola background. And, and you had uh, a colleague who knew your expertise as an infectious disease physician. Yeah. This outbreak happened while you were there in Uganda. They said, we need your help. You went. Well, he, yeah, I actually, I felt like I was spinning my wheels a little bit in Uganda at the time. Those of us who were on the ground in Africa were hearing, I think, more than perhaps the rest of the world was about an unfolding tragedy. And those are my skills. And so I actually made contact with MSF and with WHO. And then this colleague of mine is an old friend, Shevin Jacob. Um, he's an infectious disease specialist from the University of Washington, not knowing at the time he was on the ground in Kenema. And then I got a call from him a day or two later, and they were, they were overwhelmed. And I uh, went soon after that with the World Health Organization's it's a Go On Network, a global outbreak alert response network. You know, I, I was listening to you tell your story and you were going through that part of the timeline for yourself and how you were in Uganda and you had this friend and colleague of yours who called you to say, hey, we need your help. This is a crisis and we need your experience and expertise. And I tried to put myself in your shoes for that, to take that call and imagine, I mean, obviously, I mean, as an infectious disease specialist, you're going to know the dangers of this pathogen and, and how just ridiculously infectious it can be to be around it, to be handling, as, as you mentioned, the people who are infected first are those who are right there caring for this patient and then there's the next line of caregivers that are caring for them. So, I mean, I guess if I was to ask you something, I would be like, how do you weigh that? I mean, what made you say, yes, I'm going to go? Because you had to know as the specialist that you are, this is really dangerous. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a difference like everything in life between what we think in abstraction and theory and then it becomes real, things change, right? So for I'd been thinking for some time as the outbreak was unfolding that I wanted to go up and I wanted to help. Uh, suddenly when I got a call from him, uh, every all that abstraction became very real. So right. that's the first time that I realized, you know, this is, this is not a light decision to make. But nonetheless... I think that many of us on the ground in Africa at the time were uh, just wanted to get up and to help. And uh, at, at that time, it wasn't part of the, the, the either the U.S. vernacular or anyone else's vernacular at the time. You know, this was before it was on everyone's radar. And so when he called and uh, um, you could sort of hear the, the grim in his voice. Um, yeah. It was uh, not an easy decision to go, but uh, it was it was also not a difficult one. Coming up, I got the full interview with Bob Bean and my sit-down with Dr. Ian Crozier coming up next. Good morning, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on the Health Connect South radio show. Thanks for making us a part of your day today. Health Connect South, episode 35, just after the uh, 2015 Health Connect South event, which I think was uh, a success, it might be fair to say. I think I would agree with you. I guess we should ask um, Jay Schaefer if that's yeah, actually true. Chief Operating Officer yeah. of uh, Health Connect South. I mean, He's we thought it was a success, right? And so, yeah, I thought it was fantastic when uh, uh, I got to meet a number of the of the guests there, and then got to, of course, speak with Dr. Ian Crozier, who, if we have time, will run a little bit of uh, our interview with him at the show after his presentation, which had all of the attendees basically on the edge of their seat, you know, throughout his entire presentation. I don't think they wanted it to end. Yeah. You know, what's interesting, my staff said um, when we were doing the recap yesterday is that was really the only um, session where nobody was on their phones. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it doesn't matter where you, even in church these days, people are on their phones, but it was, you could have heard a pin drop. It's one of those that helps you realign your perspective. You think you got problems. <laughs> Man, the, when you hear his story and what those folks that he was helping went through and then, of course, what he endured, it was uh, really, really Well, and amazing. it's not even a perspective shift on if you think you have problems. It's more of a what are we doing with our lives mm -hmm. and the fact that he actually volunteered yeah. to go into that situation knowing what the risk was. Yeah, that was I crazy. think it was more of a realignment in that perspective. Um, that, you know, the things that we're worried about, the things that we think we're doing, that we're doing good, um, that was fearlessly entering. Yeah. I tried to put myself into that situation and I, I really, I couldn't tell you for sure which way I would swing. I mean, to, to know that, that you have such a high possibility of contracting that what is basically a very 
deadly disease. I mean, well, and I don't want to get too deep here before we actually introduce our guests. But the fact is, we have situations in our life every day, you know, friends that are in need, friends that are suffering, um, that we have the opportunity to dive deep and actually fear the rejection of even uh, overt helping in that manner. Um, so, you know, this is kind of a, a bigger conversation that we'll have someday, but that's what I was thinking about when he was speaking. And to hear him, just, he was so eloquent about the way he told the story, too, was uh, was fantastic. So if you ever have the opportunity to catch up with Dr. Ian Crozier talking about his experience, I highly encourage you to do that. One of the discussions that they had at the event was uh, focused on genetic testing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in that particular conversation, it was as it related to cancer treatment, but um, it comes into play in our conversation today. I'm joined in the studio by the CEO of Harmonics. Bob Bean is joining us, coming in to town from Tennessee, former Atlantan from what I understand. So thanks for taking some time, Bob. Man, it's glad to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. And so for folks who aren't familiar with harmonics, introduce them just at a high level about what, what it is the company's trying to accomplish. Well, harmonics is built on a platform of fully automated genetic testing that we had developed in 2000 uh, as we built the first company that uh, sort of main line of the technology into research and harmonics is focused on trying to take that the advances of that technology and make it applicable to patients you're sort of dependent on science it can only move so fast and as it moved along through 2000s we began to look at the opportunities that research was finally applying to people's lives you know there's all this work that's gone on, Yeoman's work of sequencing the human genome and the unpacking of all the information that came from that. But now it's starting to yield the benefits of application-based therapy. So you can take genetics and put it into someone's life and actually do some good with Mm -hmm. it. And that's where Harmonics was born, uh, was taking our high-throughput method and uh, making it extremely economical for people. So that was the high level. If I were in third grade, how would you describe that? I would say each of us are very different. We look similar because we all walk upright and we have similar characteristics, but our genetics are very different. And the study of genetics has yielded some of the secrets of what makes us different. And what makes us different often affects our health care. So we tend to have a big sort of one-size-fits-all mentality about healthcare, but that's really not the way it's going to be as we go forward. And so what Harmonics does is it helps unlock that difference for you and for you. And for. And so when you say that it's fully automated, what does that mean and what does it look like? Well, we run um, about 250,000 biopsies a month there. And um, and about four people work in the clean room to do that. So it's all robotic. That is, there are large and small robots that take biopsy tissue and run it through um, with liquid handlers and custom engineering, and all of it's glued together through a beautiful uh, limbs integration from the web. So it's, a, it's the kind of thing that just in that niche of that kind of testing, it's very efficient and extremely cost-effective. Um, so when we brought the buccal swab, the harmonics method over, we were able to take all of that high-throughput automation and efficiency and apply it to, to this kind of genetic testing, and it makes it extremely affordable. So what is the nice, how did you get here? I mean, give us a little bit about your background. Well, it's, um, it's an unusual story, um, and I would say it started... I grew up here in Atlanta. Um, went to a Tucker High School, Tucker Tigers, and <laughs> go, ti- go Tigers. Go Tigers. That's right. Still a loyal fan, and went away to um, become a music and worship pastor. That was my life. I attended the University of South Carolina, got a music education degree, then went to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, and finished there. Um, lived in Albuquerque, pastored in Texas, and then in Albuquerque for about five years. Um, moved to Memphis, and unfortunately, went through a career change. 
and sort of a life change back then. And that propelled me into doing something else. Now, when you have two degrees in music and one of them is a music and worship pastor job and you really can't be doing that anymore, that leaves you with some hard choices. <laughs> and what was the other music and worship and what was the other degree in? Music education. Okay. And where did the trombone fit into this? Well, you have to have a degree in something, a major instrument while you're in undergraduate school. And uh, there was a trombone laying around in the corner. And so that was my major <laughs> instrument. I could have never, uh, the idea of making a living as badly as I played the trombone would have really scared the entire musical industry. So, <laughs> so you get those two degrees and then what happened? Um, Life change happens. Yep. And so I was, um, I was given an opportunity to go to work for the old Upjohn company. Uh, it used to be Upjohn, became Pharmacia Upjohn, eventually became Pharmacia after the Monsanto merger, and then uh, after I left, was bought by Pfizer and is no more. But during those... Do you realize how encouraging this is to hear for all those people that actually have kids that want to do music majors, that there is actually life after that? Yeah, it's kind of like the witness protection program, <laughs> but you absolutely do have the opportunity. And I'll tell you something, this is, this is interesting, um, totally off subject, but um, I was on an airplane... And a woman asked me one day, she was saying, how did you get here? And I told a little bit of that story. And, and she said, so what's the same about your work before and your work now? And I said, well, you know, it's interesting. I had this, like, metamorphic moment. Epif oh, epiphany. Yes, I was oh. like, there it is. <laughs> the heavens <laughs> open. Heard the violins <laughs> beginning to play. The trombone, yeah. Yeah, well, it's a good violin. And, um, <laughs> and I said, you know, I didn't, I wasn't a very good musician. I really wasn't. I was a. I was a blue-collar musician. I worked hard. I understood the craft, but I wasn't gifted as a musician. I knew them. I was married once to a professional opera singer. I know what a gifted musician sounds like. But I was able to sit in a room with people who were really good and organize it. I was able to bring them all together and get the oboist to play with the violinist and the volunteer sopranos to sing with the volunteer tenor. And I could sort of inspire and motivate them and bring them to do one thing well. And I could stand in the back of the room and listen as it was going on and go, no, 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 we got to go back. We can't have too much timpani there. We got to, and I could fix things and sort of diagnose them and listen to bring this thing together, even though I really couldn't do all of those. And I said, I do the same thing today. I sit in a room with biologists and engineers and geneticists and IT people, and, and we sort of organize this. And I'm really just more the organizer. I don't really do any of this work. And it's the same. And I thought I was a genius until I found out there's a book <laughs> on this. And I'm so late to the game that apparently there have been musicianal, musician references back and forth about conductors because there do tend to be some tendencies that um, are very helpful in business. Well, that's interesting. Keep, yeah, let's keep going there as far as like, so you, you have all these people in the room and why do you have them in the room and how does it play out in what you're doing? So when we first formed our first company called Transnetics, it was to build the world's first fully automated genetic testing platform to apply it to this research space. And so we hired these folks for that sole purpose. We used consultants at the beginning. Once we got funding, uh, we began to hire <clears throat> employees to move that business to revenue. And in 2004, we cashed our first revenue check and began building that business over the next six years. And I think we built a great company and it's still going well and, and we, we are extremely committed to that work. Harmonics came into play as the, the science evolved, and we looked at the technology we had and how it was running and growing, and we said, you know, if we took that technology and applied it to this market, we could really bring genetic testing uh, to people at a very fast turnaround, 24-hour service, and very inexpensively. And as far as, you know, kind of walk me through, if I'm a patient that wants to have that um, genetic testing, how do I get that, and then how, does the re how do the results come, and is there any counseling that's involved? So, um, as you can imagine, there's lots of different kinds of genetic testing out there, and you've heard about them, and I'm sure done lots of great shows on them. We specifically looked at the world of pharmacogenomics, and what that specifically means is helping guide the medicine that you're about to take to be appropriate for your body. So, the way you hear about it is you go into a pharmacy, 
and a pharmacist who is a partner pharmacy with us looks at you and says, Diana, before you take this, I'd like to share with you some information that about 30% of the people that take this, the drug doesn't work. Or turns out that they're, for the particular drug area you're looking at, there's a test that can guide you because there's 13 different medicines or 15 different medicines in this therapeutic class that can all be used to treat this disorder. Why don't you consider doing a genetic test which will guide you to which ones of those medicines are actually appropriate for you? And so that's how you'd hear about it. And you'd take a little buccal swab there in the pharmacy, put it in your mouth for about 15 seconds. It would FedEx to Memphis. Within 24 hours, those results are posted back to your pharmacist. And also, you're given an opportunity to go online and request those results in writing. And we're also going to send a copy back to the prescribing physician who prescribed the medicine in the first place so that all three of you have the opportunity to look at these results and make decisions about which medicines are appropriate. We've been talking with the CEO of Harmonics. They're a pharmacogenetics company. Uh, Bob Bean has joined us in the studio describing their technology. It's pretty interesting. I'm curious, uh, as it relates to the, the, the piece you're sending this information to the prescribing physician, I'm sure this is just trickling out to them on some level. Are you getting pushback from the doctor that uh, when you say that, this awesome med that you prescribe that you really love uh, may not work for this patient. You might need to choose something else. What's that response like right now? Well, it's, it's varied. Um, in certain areas, some of our products are extremely well-received. Uh, for instance, the ADHD test, which guides physicians and patients into which medicine for ADHD is appropriate for that child. That has been extremely well-received. <clears throat> Excuse me. The... Um, the fact is we have a number of physicians who get the results the first time and call the office and say, I didn't even know this was out there. Right. And so we're very excited to be able to share that with them. And then they begin to send many of their patients to that pharmacy. And it's a it's it's exactly what you hoped it would be. And so is there a cost to the patient or who's actually paying you? Yeah, so that's that's the other thing. We we decided that to really be disruptive in this market, we had to be um, inexpensive, and we had to go away, get away from the insurance. So, um, and the reason is because the layers of complexity of whether or not insurance is going to pay for the test caused the patient and the physician not to use it. Yeah. Frankly, we're not the first people to this market. There have been people in this market for several years. The problem with their system and the system is that they're charging. Um, based on what they can get paid. And so if that's denied by the insurance company... Then, then a big marked-up price goes to the patient. That's right. Yeah. And then they go through the three-month ordeal of writing it off and discounting it down. And by the time you finish that exercise, everybody's exhausted. Hmm. So nobody walks away from that and says, man, you should try that. They walk <laughs> away from it going, I sat on a bill for $3,500 for an ADHD test. I thought I was going to have to pay that. And then it turns out they would discount that down, and I only ended up having to pay about $380. But, wow, that was close. And your average American has really not negotiated that system very well, so they don't know that that bill that first showed up once the denials have all happened is on them. And then they go back and negotiate. So we said, you know what, ADHD testing, a fair price for that is $89. And so we just make it available, our our. Plavix test for clopidogrel, you know, 30% of the people that swallowed that pill this morning do not get any or enough clopidogrel in their system to prevent strokes and heart attack. Mm -hmm. 30%. There's a black box warning on the drug by the FDA saying these mutations will prevent and can prevent this drug from working. Now, with that fact, that means 6 million Americans swallowed what was the equivalent of a chiclet this morning, thinking that they're preventing a stroke and a heart attack. And everybody knows that they're not, including their physician. And there's not any movement to fix it. And it drives me crazy. I, I mean, I, I will, I'm going to not go there because I really have to go see an anger management coach at the end <laughs> if, I get, if I stay on the subject too long because it really frustrates me that everyone is aware that this pill doesn't work. And I guess my problem is, I, I suppose that the world of medicine is going to change, and it's going to change slowly. But this doesn't have to. Right. 
we sell that test for $59 to try to make sure that every American can afford to find out that their clopidogrel is not working. There are two other really good drugs that would. Why not put them on them? Well, can that $59 not only tell me if that drug works, but all the other drugs that I may be taking works? Or is it just one charge after another for each medication? Well, so the way this sort of is starting is we're targeting these individual products so that you can learn not only clopidogrel, but then you can see what the other drugs are that you might want to consider with your physician. In the case of ADHD, it covers all the drugs in the ADHD class. It's interesting that you would start there. With ADHD? Yeah. No, it's a huge I mean, it's a huge market, but people, it's interesting yeah. that you didn't go after uh, more of a chronic, I mean, let me have you finish the conversation, but that you didn't go after more of a heart and maybe you did, so continue. Yeah, we went after heart medicine really hard. Um, unfortunately, there's just a lot of pushback in the medical community I'm about sure. it. There's a lot of interest. I mean, you have a lot of doctors that call your office and get really upset with you and say, you guys have embarrassed me in front of my patients. Yeah, that's what it's about. Um, they have they come, they've come back from this pharmacy thinking that the drug they've been taking for the last four years doesn't work. And I say, you know, I'm sorry, Doctor, it doesn't work. That's what the science has proven. We're not making this up. There's stacks of clinical studies proving it. So are you going after the Nexiums as well? Nexiums of the world? We haven't gotten a, a test coming for that. The next test on our horizon is the antidepressant test. Um, it'll cover all the antidepressants. Right after that, we'll be launching the antipsychotic panel, which will cover all the antipsychotics. We have a test now for all the pain medicines covering everything from methadone to ibuprofen allows you to find out not only which pain medicines are appropriate for your body, but at what dose. And that's interesting because of the sort of community around yeah. abuse, yeah. Uh, finding ways to, to medicate people who have chronic pain that don't have to necessarily have an opioid or have to have necessarily something that has an addictive um, aspect in their life. You come into pain, chronic pain, and you have an addictive background, it's a great opportunity to find out maybe there's some medicine you could take that would work just as well. That's awesome. We were talking to the CEO of Harmonix, pharmacogenetics company, uh, with a really interesting technology that, as Bob Bean was describing, is able to help patients determine if a pr prescription medication that they're set to take or have been taking for stroke and heart attack prevention with uh, the case of Plavix, um, ADHD medications, pain medications, um, and um, there was another one, the statins. statins. We have a statin test. I'm curious, how does it work? I mean, what, do you, what, do you, what markers are you looking for genetically? I assume that, the, the, that while we're all different, unique snowflakes, that we start to fall into certain Categories, baskets yeah. within that in terms of receptor volume. How, how, what yeah, are you looking for? Yeah, how does for? that work? What are you looking for? So... Um, and it, and it plays back a little bit to the question I didn't quite finish answering. I'm not ADD, even though people say that I am. I, I deny the my mind wanders. But I, Diana asked this question, and it, I'll finish it here. In our bodies, there are certain areas or gene, genes and mutations within those genes that sort of determine what your liver becomes. And your liver is doing most of the filtering, the pharmacodynamic work and the pharmacokinetic work. So drugs work two ways. One is how they affect you, and the second way is how do you affect it. For instance, with clopidogrel, your liver has to turn that drug on. It comes into your body inert. It doesn't have any uh, power to help you. When it hits your liver, it's activated. It's called a prodrug. And so when it turns on, then it becomes a drug. The problem with it is if you have these mutations in the CYP. To see, uh, to CYP gene area, you may actually not turn it on. So the mutations are specific for the function of the gene. So we'll run a test for four genes for pain. And in there, we're looking at about 14 or 15 different markers in those genes. And those are what are indicating whether or not the medicines are going to process the way they should or throw off, you know, sort of a side effect profile. In certain cases, medicines are actually can be fatal. So you're looking at a large range of things. Um, I'll give you an example. 
it's not indicated as much anymore, but we have a we have a consultant that has experienced this where moms who have had C-sections are prescribed codeine. And if they breastfeed, that milk containing the codeine is going to move to the child. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not supposed to be done anymore for that reason. But if the child, there are many stories of children who were breastfeeding who did not have the appropriate copies of the 2D6 gene, which is what is going to help indicate that. And that codeine ended up causing the child to go to respiratory arrest. These fundamentals of medicine are well known. They're just sort of not completely ignored. Yeah. Yeah. So when you get to the point where certain markers have all been tested, you kind of know for all drugs. We're not there yet. And you could get that test. You could go out there and pay a lot of money, and you could take a test that will give you every marker that you need. But you're going to have a lot of information you're going to have to sort through. Ours is extremely simple, and it's very inexpensive, and it's supposed to be today. Apply it today to something you're doing today. Um, You know, that test that will give me everything is $99, and your test is $89, right? So... Yeah, the $99 is not exactly what you think it is. So um, you got to be careful with what you read. For instance, the interpretation of those markers is not a clinical interpretation. It's a web interpretation. And your DNA is being collected for the purpose of selling it again back to the pharmaceutical industry. It's not being collected in a clinical laboratory for the purpose of you finding out what works for you. And um, the FDA said... So is this kind of like the difference between getting your horoscope done on the back of a bubble bubble gum wrapper versus going to an astronomer that actually understands it? Is that, I mean... There is is something to that. I will say this. It's it's a... If that company had participated in the process of healthcare, they would never have been able to launch the products that they've had. And it's the reason the FDA said you can't do it anymore. And um, they're doing it in Europe, but they're not willing to put that under medical scrutiny. They're not willing to use clinical studies to determine which markers. You do not want, and I'll just give you real specifics, you do not want people deciding whether or not you have a predictive disorder based on a study in a German laboratory that was only conducted on mice. That's not valid. It's not clinically valid. And so you want to make sure that what's being told to you has at least been through in vivo studies where people are studied and there's enough clinical data to support it. And you could sit before a regulatory body and say, here's the data that says we're confident that these markers determine this. So prognosticative testing like that Mm -hmm. can be very misleading. There are a lot of people who have gone out and had surgeries they didn't need to have and when their doctors wouldn't do them in the u.s they get on a plane and fly to south america and have the surgery that's not the way we ought to be helping people with genetics does it also show interaction uh the kind of the threat of interaction the testing you're doing drug interaction drug interaction um no not what we're doing um that's fairly well known and most softwares in pharmacies already know that so there's they're already looking at that and what you do find out with this kind of testing is if you are compromised in a particular gene, the drug-drug interaction possibility gets worse if you load another drug into the same therapeutic area of your genome. So if you are compromised on 2D6, your drug-drug interaction escalates dramatically. Does it also show an inclination towards like uh, more liver damage based on alcohol consumption as well? Because I'm always surprised when people are taking Lipitor and they're still drinking a lot. We don't test for that. Um, we're surprised at a lot of things that people do when they're <laughs> taking medicines that we hear stories about. That's interesting. So point of payment is, for me as a patient, is that the pharmacy asks me? And then yes. I pay? Yes, okay. pay and so, right there. And so if I were interested in this, what pharmacies do I need to be visiting to actually have your services? Well, the simple way to do it is to go to our website, harmonicsdiagnostics.com, and click on Pharmacy Locator. Type in your zip code, and it will show you all the pharmacies in your area that have pharmacists who are trained uh, who can handle uh, your conversation. We're in um, almost every Rite Aid in America now, so you can go to just about any Rite Aid. 
but there's also a lot of great independent pharmacists that are doing these tests and making these available to their patients. Does it tend to be more of a compounding, compounding pharmacist? or No, not really. Mostly retail. Um, in fact, we found the compounding folks to typically, if they have a retail side, then they're open to it. But if they are you know, just a compounding pharmacy, they're really not doing a lot of retail business. And so, I'm so sorry. I, I know you're trying to get a word in edgewise here, but um, are, are the pharmacies making any money off of this as well? They do keep a small percentage of the fee for the administrative process. They're going to have to stack, stock the stuff. They have to place the orders online. They go over the, the stuff with you, the results with you. And so we do share a small piece of revenue. But I can assure you, if if you are under the misconception that your pharmacist is offering you this test in order for them to make money, it's not enough money for them to waste their time with it. They're not going to Bermuda. I promise you that. <laughs> on, you know, on a $49 test, there's just not that much money to make. Yeah. Well, I'm curious what their level of interest is. I mean, they need to sell pills, right? So, I mean, it's one of those things where I, I've been around the, the healthcare side of things now for 20 years and more intimately here in the medical community, the last six. And I've seen that your outcome isn't necessarily what's going to make me do this or that. No, you're, you're you know right. what I'm saying? Yeah. So when I need to move some Lipitor and I'm going to find out that 30% of the patients that would have been buying it won't be now that I've done this $49 test of which I only made a few bucks. I mean, I can see why somebody would say, no, thank you. But you're going to buy something. You see, our test doesn't tell you not to take a medicine. It tells you which medicine to take. So you come in on a Concerta prescription for ADHD, and it's not like you're going to go away. You're just going to move over to Stratera, or you're going to move to Vyvanse, or you're going to okay. move to something else. So it's not going to say, gee, you're only a 12-year-old boy, and boys happen to behave this way? No, it won't say that. Um, I, my father apparently had this conversation when I was in seventh grade with my seventh grade teacher when she suggested I be put on Ritalin and he said that's your problem not his and um, <laughs> those days are gone um, so we do have parents that probably look for solutions like that because teachers are struggling with little boys in classrooms right. I'm a firm believer that little boys our classrooms aren't built for little boys mm -hmm. um, and so uh, but there is a place, there's a significant place for ADHD therapy in America, and it's uh, it's a legitimate concern. It may not be as large a market as we're applying, but it is a legitimate concern. And it it is effective therapy, and it can be very helpful for children. I can see how this would actually help with, especially with an ADHD. The medications have so many side effects, you know, the crash, and a lot of times they stop taking it because of the side effects. Um, which also isn't part of a really good therapy program. Um, it will eliminate a lot of that trial and error, especially as you get into the antidepressants, which, you know, that mixture is always such a, a fine line um, as trying to figure out. So I, I imagine that this would actually help eliminate a lot of the trial and error that goes on to into with the doctor and, and testing different things. That is exactly what it's there to eliminate. And, you know, it's funny because when I start, first started selling pharmaceuticals, I didn't know the first thing about selling pharmaceuticals. So when I walked into the field, I had an antidepressant that uh, we were selling, or actually it was a drug for obsessive compulsive disorder. And so I went to some of my customers and said, my, my physicians, and said, tell me how, because I'm in a sack full of medicines. There's right. a lot of, <laughs> you know, OCD medicine. How do you decide? And many of them told me this story, and it was very interesting. They would say, well, the first thing I do is I say, have you ever taken one of these medicines before? And the patient says, no. The next thing I say is, anybody in your family ever take one? And so the woman who's sitting in front of me who's thinking about, you know, hurting her husband because she's so frustrated, looks at me and says, well, no, but my sister took Zoloft, but that one nearly made her crazy. So once we moved her over to Prozac, she was much better. The doctor pulls out a prescription pad and writes Prozac and hands it to her. Why? Because he's practicing pharmacogenomics. That's what he's doing. He's been doing that for years, just looking at any of the evidence in that gene family, hoping that maybe they have similar genomes and that the medicine will work the same way. He wasn't using the word genome. 
but that's what they were practicing was pharmacogenomics. Oh, I thought it was just their way of getting somebody to shut up. <laughs> Get out of my office here. <laughs> so with, with where you are right now and the evolution of your company, what are you looking for as far as partnerships? Obviously, more pharmacy, uh, the, the large pharmacy change would clearly help in terms of making this available to the general population. But, I mean, outside of that, I mean, are, what other resources are you trying to find that will help you do what you do, what you're doing. Well, um, it's a great question. Um, yes, more pharmacy chains uh, would be helpful. More independent pharmacies. You know, there's 23,000 independent pharmacists, and those independent pharmacists have remarkable relationships with their patients, and so they tend to be far more assertive and far more compassionate in helping bring this science into their patients' lives. So we. We, we, you know, we've done a lot of shows this summer at uh, the independent pharmacy conventions where these folks were. We signed up, you know, 500 different independent pharmacists this year. So we're looking for more of those independent pharmacists who are really looking to make a difference, who want to add this to their bag. I mean, if you think about it, if you're, um, I've got a friend, Buddy Bunch, in, um, in, I think he's in Boaz, Alabama. He's, he's in North Alabama. And, um, and Buddy's Pharmacy is in the middle of rural northern Alabama. And it's, you can it's walk. It's Buddy's and not Bubba? No, it's Buddy's. Okay. And, and if you can walk into the middle of rural northern Alabama and have a genetic test done to, to look at your genome and do it for less than $100 and get it in 24 hours, that's kind of remarkable. Um, and so we think that that's a terrific opportunity for a lot of independent pharmacists to make a, a big difference in their patients' lives. The second thing I think we'd be looking for are those physician groups who are progressive enough to understand that genetics is not something that's a long way off. It's here, and it has application today, and the science is solid, and the clinical studies are solid, and it's time to start applying this to patients' lives and stop practicing the dose and wait and see approach. You don't have to do it that way anymore. Yeah. And, and it's time to put away the fear that this makes me look bad. I mean, yesterday we didn't have the test available today. We do. Right. Uh, you know, so uh, it's frustrating to hear that being a reason why I would reject this um, or have a problem with it is because I feel like it makes me look bad. Let's put that to bed because clearly now you have a tool yep. that lets you truly optimize your patient's outcome and response to a medi medication that obviously can have some pretty significant impacts on their daily the, life. The last thing I'd say, CW, about that is there's a, there's a sort of a little bit of a criticism that we get in pharmacogenomics that the science isn't perfect. There isn't any science that's perfect. I say, it's hard to get perfect science in healthcare. Yeah, and I, I say this around the office sometimes. we we got to stop making great the enemy of good, right? G good, good. We should do what we can. We shouldn't wait until we've answered every question known to man Best about the evidence. human gene. Yes. Yeah. You know, you have these folks that sort of criticize pharmacogenomics saying, well, we're still not sure about all that. Yeah, well, we kind of really are. And, by the way, you really don't understand how aspirin works, and you don't mind telling people how to use that on a daily basis. Yeah. So, No level one study has been conducted to make sure parachutes are really necessary. <laughs> and people have lived from a great height fall without one so That's exactly you right. know you could you could take that out to say well, no study's been done but yet you're not going to jump out of a plane without one so come on have you ever um are you collecting other data uh this besides what you're what the patient is testing for and then if so what what happens with that data no we're not in the data collection business we're just a clinical laboratory doing tests providing it back to the physician the patient the pharmacist and um trying very hard to make sure that we run a company with high integrity, that no one ever comes into a pharmacy and thinks that their genome is being sold to someone else or that it's going to be turned over to someone else or anything like that. We test only what the patient orders. We destroy the DNA in 30 days, and the data belongs to the physician and the patient. Do you give tours? I can imagine with the robotics involved and also just the automation on the tracking, it would be fascinating to watch. You know, we do. It's interesting. Um, 
what it's interesting who comes in and wants to see it. Um, it's a fairly small footprint, but it's really interesting. Our our engineers have done such a remarkable job of building custom robotics that you you have to look at it and you go, I can't believe you guys do two hundred and fifty thousand samples a month in a room. It's pretty like crazy. This. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and is there a capacity to be bigger? Oh sure. This this pharmacogenomics opportunity is a big opportunity. I mean, we w welcome the day that you walk in to order a test from us and you've already done all the genes and we give it to you. I mean, that, when I say this out loud, everybody in the office thinks I'm crazy, but I really don't believe you should pay to have anything done twice. If you've done, if the, if the test you go to order has effectively already been tested by us, we ought to reinterpret that for you and give you the results for free. And I can't wait till the day that people are using enough pharmacogenomics that they they have this on their phone and they hit a reinterpret button and they go, oh, I'm standing in my urologist's <laughs> office. These are the drugs I'm, I'm qualified to take. That's awesome. Sounds like your next, next business venture. Yeah? Yeah, it's like an, an app. Well, <laughs> There's an app for that. It's called My Harmonics, and uh, <laughs> you can have it. And we're, we hope that we'll be able to do the reinterpretation for you as, the, as you've equipped yourself for the science. Real quickly, tell people where they can go again to the website www.harmonicsdiagnostics.com. And that's with a N-Y-X at yeah. the end of Harmonics. Because we were so stupid, and we picked a Y-X on the end of our first company's name, and now it's everywhere. So. <laughs> yeah, check it out. It's been a fascinating conversation. I'm going to let the folks listening get a taste of Dr. Ian Crozier. I caught up with him at the Health Connect South event, so I'm going to run that real quickly, and then we'll come back and close out the show here. So here's my conversation with Dr. Ian Crozier. I'm joined now by Dr. Ian Crozier. He was one of the keynote speakers here at the Health Connect South event 2015, and I had the pleasure of getting a chance to say hello and I begged him to jump on the microphone with me and, and share just a couple of thoughts actually and I was asking you how did you come to be here at the event you were telling me about Russ LaPerry this guy calling you up and saying Ian we really want you to come and speak to us at the uh, at the event and I can say as one of the folks in the audience I mean we had a full auditorium listening to your story and even though you were talking about the fact that it was going long I can assure you nobody was wishing for the end of the story because everybody was on the edge of their seat with everything you had to say and how you poignantly shared your your story. So how did you get here? Thanks, CW. Um, those are kind words. You know, I I, uh, I don't remember exactly how I got here other than the <laughs> fact that uh, Russ, Russ called me and he was very, very persuasive. There was something uh, very compelling about his description of a meeting and an interaction that was designed to uh, aid collaboration rather than hinder it. And, and uh, he was persistent when I wasn't answering calls. <laughs> and eventually, uh, eventually uh, I agreed to come. And I actually, it's been uh, quite a remarkable day as my first first time to an event like this, but I'm, I've become increasingly interested in making sure that we're all asking the right questions and helping each other answer them. And uh, I've got a new set of questions that have emerged from my own bedside at Emory and some bedsides in Kenema and this type of environment that facilitates collaboration and connectedness between uh, even competitors is uh, is remarkable and sometimes rare. So, yeah. and obviously for folks who aren't yet familiar with Dr. Ian Crozier, of course he's one of the f fellows that um, came to the United States, was actually treated here at Emory in Atlanta as an Ebola patient. You had been in Africa doing work for years. Actually, you were born in Zimbabwe, if I'm not mistaken. I was born in Zimbabwe. I had returned back to Africa about six years ago, and I'd been working at a place called the Infectious Diseases Institute, which is in Kampala, Uganda. It's a center of excellence for primarily HIV complex care, and I've been working on uh, how best to, to train African clinicians, doctors, as well as nurses and clinical officers in decision-making sort of skills. So I, I, I don't come from an Ebola background. And, and you had uh, a colleague who knew your expertise as an infectious disease physician. Yeah. This outbreak happened while you were there in Uganda. They said, we need your help. You went. Well, he, yeah, I actually, I felt like I was spinning my wheels a little bit in Uganda at the time. Those of us who were on the ground in Africa were hearing, I think, more than perhaps the rest of the world was about an unfolding tragedy. And those are my skills. And so I actually made contact with MSF and with WHO. And then this colleague of mine is an old friend, Shevin Jacob. Um, he's an infectious disease specialist from the University of Washington, not knowing at the time he was on the ground in Kenema. And then I got a call from him a day or two later, and they were, they were overwhelmed. And I uh, went soon after that with the World Health Organization's, it's a go-on network, a global 
outbreak alert response network. You know, I I was listening to you tell your story, and you were going through that part of the timeline for yourself and how you were in Uganda, and you had this friend and colleague of yours who called you to say, hey, we need your help. This is a crisis, and we need your experience and expertise. And I tried to put myself in your shoes for that to take that call and imagine, I mean, obviously, I mean, as an infectious disease specialist, you're going to know the dangers of this pathogen and and how just ridiculously infectious it can be to be around it to be handling as as you mentioned the people who are infected first are those who are right there caring for this patient and then there's the next line of caregivers that are caring for them so i mean i guess if i was to ask you something i would be like how do you weigh that i mean what made you say yes i'm going to go because you had to know as the specialist that you are this is really dangerous yeah well, you know, there's a difference like everything in life between what we think in abstraction and theory and then it becomes real, things change, right? So for I'd been thinking for some time as the outbreak was unfolding that I wanted to go up and I wanted to help. Uh, suddenly when I got a call from him, uh, every all that abstraction became very real. <laughs> right. So that's the first time that I realized, you know, this is this is not a light decision to make. But nonetheless... I think that many of us on the ground in Africa at the time were uh, just wanted to get up and to help. And uh, at, at that time, it wasn't part of the, the, the either the U.S. vernacular or anyone else's vernacular at the time. You know, this was before it was on everyone's radar. And so when he called and uh, um, you could sort of hear the, the grim in his voice. Um, yeah. It was uh, not an easy decision to go, but uh, it was... It was also not a difficult one. Uh, it was, uh, you know, it was vicarious. But I mean, for me, as I heard you talking about that experience and that moment, I, I, I felt, I felt fear in me, trying to, as I m- mentioned, envision. Oh my gosh, I can't imagine what I would do. I don't know if I have the fortitude to say yes, I'm coming. Mm-hmm. For you, I mean, when you made that decision and you're, you're, you're heading there. I mean, did you feel fear? Did you feel fear once you got there? And, or, you know, how was that for you? Yeah, I mean, there, you know, over the evolution of, of my story over the past six months, there have been multiple sort of nodes to, to feel fear, and, and everyone does. And I remember, you know, you can uh, learn as much as you want, either in theory or in practice, about putting PPE on, but it's always different the first time you step over that threshold sort of behind the curtain. Yeah. And you realize that this is very real. But uh, to be honest, um, people have been doing that, as I said in my talk, quietly, without a lot of fanfare, not standing behind podiums. They've been doing it every day for a long, long time. And people are doing similar things, um, you know, over this little neighborhood of a a globe that we have all the time. And uh, so I'm not saying it's... um, it's, those decisions are made without fear, but men, plenty of people make those decisions every day uh, with an element of fear and just decide to do them. You know, one of the things that stood out for me in the experience of hearing you tell your story was how, I mean, it brought it home, obviously, when patients such as yourself began to come to the United States and people in the United States, I know, felt fear, right? Because they didn't know what to expect and what does this mean for us and is this going to happen to us here? So there was a great deal of fear among those folks that were here. But the thing that really, I think, struck me in your story was, I mean, we were still watching it from afar. I mean, we were even watching your experience from afar. I was seeing you through my television. I wasn't here with you. Um, and, you know, the thing that you brought home here for me as a, as a person listening to your story was the human side of your experience, not just yours personally, but particularly the folks that you worked alongside who um, they were there. This is their home. This is their people. This is their brothers, friends, mothers, fathers. Uh, and, and, and clearly that was something that really made a mark on you and your experience there i mean you 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 carry that and i can see how you you kind of embody them now and you carry them forward to us i really appreciated the opportunity to get to see that because you know like i say it was an it was an ebola effect infection and an ebola outbreak but these were individuals that you brought names and faces to us with thank you uh that's that's something that i am uh also increasingly interested in doing is is putting some flesh and bone on what are very intimidating statistics. And so whether it's uh, patients of mine or colleagues of mine or some friends of mine, um, uh, 
every one of those data points is a story and a narrative, and many of them have ended in in loss. Yeah, and then now now uh, now people will listen to me tell their stories, and that's that's uh, that won't last for long. But uh, I'll I'll co-opt that space for as long as I can because um, our attention span, uh, not just the media, but uh, the many different sort of aspects of our society is far too short in this regard and I like it is I think with there are things like this happening all over the world that we're unaware of and there are a lot of uh, you know grainy real heroes that never never get behind a podium mm-hmm. and, and I, I get to talk about some of them for you you mentioned um, that from the bedside you had questions that have arisen in your mind can you talk about that? I mean, what what should we be thinking about as we look at this situation, whether it's Ebola in and of itself? Obviously, that's a, an issue that, that needs greater planning. I mean, we had the opportunity on our, our show recently to meet a group of people who are developing a vaccine for Ebola. So, I mean, that's encouraging to see that on the horizon. But just in general, I mean, what were the questions that arose for you, both as a patient on the bed at Emory, yeah. you mentioned, and yeah. then also as your as you're standing at the bedside as a provider. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I have a, an interesting perspective, I think. Uh, I spent a lot of time at Kenema Bedsides as a as a care provider. I spent a lot of time, much, much of it unconscious, uh, receiving care at, uh, at two bedsides, as I talked about, that are very different. Um, and yet, uh, the same interaction between uh, a virus and, and a human being, a host, is happening. Um, and uh, figuring out what happens as those two interact, the, the host pathogen or the dance that happens between uh, a bug and a host and whether it's a successful or a, um, a failed outcome is really, really interesting and now very personal to me, right? So understanding uh, what really makes a difference in care and how do you save lives uh, is, uh, is a compelling part of many of the questions that I have. For example... Um, you know, I, uh, had many, many, many patients who probably had, uh, the same severity of illness that I did, uh, and didn't survive. I know that, uh, without med evacuation and, uh, incredibly sort of world-class care that I received at Emory, I would have been dead in a week. Right. And, uh... Uh, many of, of my patients and those same colleagues and same friends didn't have that same access. And so I'm, I'm really interested in understanding both bedsides in a way that we sort of uh, can make sure that, I, you know, I, I, again, I'm repeating myself, but, but Paul Farmer talks about uh, modern medicine failing to collide with Ebola over the last 40 years. And he's really correct in many, many ways. The outbreaks have been very different and very small and very isolated. And uh, we've, we've now had a few of those collisions, particularly in some of the med evacuated survivors, and even a few of those collisions occurring now in West Africa. And um, learning about how to make sure that that type of world-class access and uh, modern medicine can happen, those types of collisions can happen, um, in situ in West Africa is increasingly uh, important to me. Now, we have to be realistic as well, right? Uh, that's why I was saying that many of the things that I think save lives uh, are not necessarily uh, magic bullets. They are right. simple things that aren't rocket science. Yes. You know, they are paying attention to, to gastrointestinal fluid losses and um, replacing them and preventing and treating severe dehydration and simple electrolytes and co-infections. Um, and I think this is the first time, uh, uh, at least on this scale, that we've, we've paid attention to that aspect of the raising the standard of care inside the four walls of an ETU. Um, and that's uh, evolved quite rapidly and, and significantly over the course. You know, and I was part of that as, as both a, a doctor and a patient. So. What do you think in the end, what finally turned the tide back? Because clearly just a handful of people got medevaced out. The rest of the survivors that are there were treated in the ETUs that you described. So, I mean, what, what finally turned the tide to, you know, make it begin to fade, you know, from its ever-rising numbers to starting to come back under control. What do you think kind of 
help that uh, happen. I think that, you know, those are, uh, remember there were times we were talking about millions of infections coming and uh, an incredibly aggressive, comprehensive partnerships between um, the major players and the governments on the ground um, to throw whatever was possible at uh, uh, getting uh, patients who were infected diagnosed and getting them into ETUs and cared for and then tracking down their contacts and the chains of transmission. There's been an immense amount of work that's gone uh, into this over the past uh, over the past year. Uh, and, you know, the virus is teaching us even now, uh, which we're having th three cases um, a week over the last months, um, that this last tenth of the last mile is uh, uh, requires just the same, if not more, uh, vigilance and care. And so those basic principles, um, uh, once we... Um, once we had sort of resources and uh, some manpower and caretakers on the ground, enough to track down contacts and do the things that we've known about for a long time, uh, were true um, over the last you know year. Do you see that now that this has happened on the scale that it happened, and, and you mentioned the response to it that ultimately began to help at least curb it to some extent, do you believe that that is going to have a lasting effect on our approach um, in those communities and on how we go about interacting with the populations, educating them on ways that maybe that they can keep that number down or even maybe push it out of the community altogether? I hope so. I, I, I would expect that, uh, you know, the average man and woman on the ground in Sierra Leone has been through unbelievable it's last year and a half. And so I think people are uh, not blasé in any way about this. They're paying attention and they've learned a great deal. Um, I, I, I think building long-term uh, capacity and ability to both detect disease and respond to illness um, is going to take a longer-term commitment um, and uh, I hope that we uh, we don't pull out too quickly in that regard we, we really I think one of the one of the things that were was really missing to me at least in this outbreak was um, was local talent it was local uh, talented African staff and in numbers enough to turn into this outbreak. Right. And uh, we, we really um, need to think about sort of career development and training in the same ways that we would think about, you know, trainees and careers on this side of the pond. Sometimes we have a bit of a double standard in how we do that. So really developing uh, uh, skilled uh African healthcare workers at, at multiple levels, they're there. There's lots of talent and lots of brain power and lots of commitment there and just figuring out how to uh, get people trained and ready and I think can be done. Yeah, you mentioned that you still have your home in Uganda. You have a flat there that still has all of the things that were there when you left to go and, and face this to begin with. What's next for you? Uh, that's a great question. <laughs> Um, I literally, I've been, uh, I've been on the road for the last three months back in, in uh, either Sierra Leone or Uganda and a few other places. So um, I'm speaking a, a great deal in the next month or two and, and looking at some uh, opportunities in the medium, short to medium term to re-engage um, this outbreak in West Africa. And I'm looking at, at, at partnerships and ways to do that right now. Well, I, I believe that you're going to find that as you speak, as you tell this story, as you did today, um, I think that you're going to be amazed at the, at the impact of your story um, on so many levels. I mean, just talking about, as I mentioned, making people feel aware of the human element. This is not just somebody that we don't know, we can't see, they can't feel, they're on the other side of the ocean. Um, let's hope they don't come here or that kind of thing to, wow, these are real humans. This is like my mom and dad. This could be, you know, and so making people think about that, but then also just, I think, really begin to have serious dialogues about how do we prepare for these events so that we can respond quickly, whether they're here in the United States, in our own community, or in some other community, whether it's Africa or elsewhere. I think that you're going to have the, your voice is going to be unique in that you're not just a man who survived a terrible infection, you're also a physician who has uh, that perspective as well. You talk about being able to bring both sides of the bedside to the conversation. That's what I think is really unique, and your story is extremely eloquent and poignant. Thanks, CW, very much. It's uh, I tell you the story, uh, you know, obviously I'm getting better at, 
at telling it and thinking about uh, what points I want to get to get across. But the truth is, the story needs no added drama. No. Um, and the characters, uh, some of them here, some of them gone, uh, are uh, pieces of a narrative that I'll I will. F- sadly and fondly think about for the rest of my life and i'll talk about it for as long as they'll let me so uh and that connected to that in the middle of all of that loss and tragedy is uh is some some incredible sort of scientific stories to unfold as well and so uh it's going to be an interesting time down the road well i have to say that for me personally it's been an honor to get a chance to sit down and and talk to you for this few minutes and i'm hopeful that maybe our paths will get to cross again sometime and we can talk about all the things you've been doing since absolutely man we'll we'll catch up again in a few months how's that i really appreciate you sharing your story with me thank you thanks so much and real quickly in closing because we took up our full hour it goes so fast as we always see it happen here on the health connect south radio show to to bob bean uh, of harmonics really want to say thanks so much for stopping by i thought the conversation was very very interesting and it clearly has a place out there i'm hopeful that we can help you get the word out and maybe uh bring a few more people to this technology that'll help them with their outcomes. I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Yeah. Thank you for having the me. The future is here. Yeah, that's right. And for the folks who aren't familiar with Sherwick, get over to Sherwick.com, S-H-A-R-W-I-K.com and learn more about them, our partner in the show. To the folks at Health Connect South, we appreciate you and everybody who made this a part of their day today. We want to say thank you very much. Your time's important to us. We'll see you all same time, same place next week. We'll see you then. This show is brought to you by Sherwick Media. Sherwick is the health and wellness solution, content that inspires change. Learn more at www.sherwick.com. That's sharewik.com. And link up with us on Facebook and Twitter.